Thanks, guys. It is great to be with you. I can't think of a group of people I'd rather spend our anniversary with. Well, actually, that's not true. I'd, I'd rather be in Hawaii, but that wasn't going to happen this year. So you guys are second best. So this, this is exciting to be, to be with you. Uh, let me, I know we've prayed, but let me pray, and we'll dive in. Father, we, we come before you um, in varying states of awareness of our need, but we, we know that we need you. Um, and we recognize that as we hear your words, that we're not just hearing uh, ideas for us to consider. We are hearing words um, that represent life. As you've said, we don't live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so your words are, are not just a set of rules for us to like or dislike or agree with or disagree with or do or not do. They, they really form the habitat of, of our life. And you've created us to be free. We can wander a long ways away from your words. We can follow other words. But what we cannot do is thrive apart from your words. And so I pray for each of us that you'd speak to us, as you already have so far, about um, where we're wandering and we need to get back on track, not just so we can be better rule keepers, but so that we can live the kind of life and influence other people in the kind of ways you want us to. I pray for everyone <clears throat> that is uh, gathered here tonight, uh, every single individual was made in your image. And you have said that before any of us were born, um, you knew our names, you've had us on your mind. And so we have tremendous value, not, not because of anything we've done or anything we might do or because of what other people might or might think, think about us, but we have tremendous value because of your love for us, your your creation of us, and the fact that we're made in your image. So I pray everyone tonight would, would have a sense of, of what amazing <clears throat> gifts you've given us and how much you do love us. So again, we can sit here, um, but we need your help to open our hearts. So we, we pray that you would crack open our hearts tonight. You'd speak to each of us exactly where we're at, and that we would walk away with uh, something that we can do to, um, to follow you. And we pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, I'm going to start with a, a question. It's a what-if question <clears throat> that I've heard several times this past month. I don't know if you've heard this, but here's, here's the question. You ready? What if a mouse could change the world? What if a mouse could change the world? That's the opening line of, of a Disney commercial celebrating the 100th anniversary of Disney. And I've heard it a lot of times. When we watched some of the Oscars Sunday night, um, that was the opening line. What if a mouse could change the world? Well, a mouse can't change the world. I think we know that. Disney knows that. Uh, of course, the mouse we're talking about is Mickey Mouse. And there's no denying about the cultural impact that Disney has had on, our, on this world, but changing the world? Again, my background is marketing, and our job is to oversell stuff, but that's, 
overselling Mickey just a little bit. I mean, Mickey, um, he can make billions of dollars. Well, actually, he can't. You know, his image and lots of smart people promoting stuff can, but they can't change the world. So why would Disney say that? Well, Disney, if they're anything, they're not dumb. There are a lot of intelligent people working at Disney down the street here. And they know that we all know, deep in our hearts, that the world is in desperate need of change. The past three years have made that abundantly clear, if it wasn't already clear. They also know that none of us really knows how to change the world. So what if a mouse could change the world? I mean, none of us think that Mickey can, but we are drawn to the, the desire that someone, somehow, can change this world. Well, Jesus arrived on this earth 2,000 years ago with a real plan to change the world. Not a mouse plan, a real plan. And the change he brought was so profound that he split our calendar to two parts. We still call the years in number either before he arrived or after he rose from the dead and left. So his plan for making a difference in the world was not by bringing about any kind of sudden magic-like experience that gets millions of people to kind of see what they're doing wrong and turn around and become the kind of people that we wish they would be and they probably wish they would be. Now, God's plan is its the theme that we're, we're dealing with this week. It's, it's a salt and light plan. And this is the plan, to make a profound change in the lives of people, one person at a time, to save them. And when God says he's going to save us, it's more than just forgive us, um, grant us eternal life in his presence. It is that. But it's, it's a, to profoundly, at the very core of who we are, begin to put the broken pieces of our life back together again. That's what Jesus came to do. And then as he saves us and continues to save us, continues to change us, then we get to become his agents of change in the various parts of the world that we live in. And so, like salt, we get the chance to flavor everything around us. And like light, we get a chance to shine in the darkness of this world. So here's the salt and light passage. I figured we should probably read it. So you got the t-shirts, you got to know what the verse is. So here's, here's the verse, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus is speaking. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out, <clears throat> trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. Town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp, put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So these are the key phrases. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, I want you to, to feel the, the 
personal, almost the finger of Jesus pointing at you when you listen to these words. Because Jesus was speaking these words to a bunch of ordinary people who had gathered on the edge of the Sea of Galilee to hear him speak. And in what later became known as the Sermon on the Mount, of which this is a part, Jesus is laying out the need that we all have for change and forgiveness. And in this part of his sermon, Jesus is inviting them, and by extension us, to join him in this world-changing endeavor. So let me, let me um, slow down and, and just consider the key words of what Jesus is saying to us. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So, you. This is both a singular and a plural you. It's an individual you in that this is a very personal invitation from Jesus to you and to me to accept him as our Savior, the only one who can forgive us, and to follow him as our Lord, the only one who can lead us. If you still think you're good enough, if you still think you're smart enough, you don't need a Savior, you don't need a Lord. We have decided, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that you are not good enough and you are not smart enough to run your own life. So you've decided to follow Jesus as Savior and Lord. You are part of the you. But it's also a plural you, or as the Texans say, y'all, which I don't think there's a better way to say it. Just all of you, you all. I mean, we say you guys, but that makes sense. You all. So it's, it's a plural. And the reason this is a plural you is because it's not just you and your big dreams can do anything you can accomplish. That's starting to sound like Mickey. No, this is, you can't do this on your own. You are going to have to band together with other followers of me, and together, you all are going to be a part of my plan to change the world. So you, that's you. You individually, and then you somehow collectively. You are. Not might be, could be, maybe one day will be, but are. In other words, you don't earn the status of salt and light. You don't spend three years really working hard and eventually you get the salt label. Or eventually you're bright enough, someone says, okay, we'll call you light. Now at the moment when you decide to give your life to Jesus, you are salt and light. You may not feel like a world changer, but in that instant, you're a part of it. You are. I'm not saying you're perfect. I'm saying you are what Jesus is talking about. You are the. The. As a follower of Jesus, you and I are not just one of the many possible ways this world might be changed. We are, we're it. We're the plan. We're part of the plan. This is it. There is no other plan. There's no plan B. There's no, if this doesn't work out, we'll try something else. This is the plan. We are a part of the way. 
Not because we're the smartest people, far from it. Not because we're the best people, far from it. But because of the fact that the treasure, the power of God to change lives is now resonant in us. Or as Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. The point is not the jar. The point is the treasure. That's true of us. You are the, and then salt or light of the world, of the earth. This is amazing. There is nothing in all of the world. I mean, you can search this world. You can talk to the smartest people in this world. You can read the accounts of the millions of people who have come before us from different parts of this world, and you will never find anything like the power of Jesus to change a life. We're the salt, not of just our family or some friends. We are the salt and the light of the entire world. Whatever the problem in the world is, wherever in the world there are people, we're in need. So what's our part in this world-saving plan? Well, we've been given a two-part assignment, salt and light. We can describe it additional ways to this, and and God's words do, but Jesus summarizes it in these two ways, salt and light. We are, as salt, to cooperate with Jesus in his lifelong project to change us, to be different. As we're different, God uses us to make a difference in other people. If we're not different, as he said, if there is no saltiness in us, then we're not going to be a change agent. So that's our part. We have to cooperate. And it's just a lifelong project. I'm 63, and I am... The older I get, the less impressed I am with myself. I mean, I've grown. I know I've grown. But there's just always growth to be done. So we just keep working on saltiness with God's help. And light. We are to cooperate with Jesus in his lifelong project of positioning us around people. That's the point of the light. You don't cover it up. You don't don't put a basket over it. So the point of the salt is the difference that God makes in us and how that influences around us. The point of light is when you're, when you're around people, don't cover it up. Don't, don't be shy. I mean, don't, don't be an idiot. Don't be a jerk. But, but don't, I mean, don't stick a flashlight in people's eyes, but don't cover it up. It's because the thing is God positions us. I'm just amazed at how he does this. Bumps us into people. Dan was telling some stories just this week in Laguna Beach Place. You just just always have your eyes open. So in the New Testament book of 1 Peter, this is what we're going to be looking at in in the four sessions that I'm going to be teaching. We're going to work through 1 Peter. Not the entire book. I'm going to get you started. And then the last one's going to be kind of a, a look at the end part. I encourage you to read the entire book and study it for yourself. It's a fascinating book. Because in this book, Peter's writing to, to Christians who are experiencing the real world challenges of being salt and light in the world that they found themselves in. 
So if you're going to be salt and light in this world, you're going to have to deal with the challenge of being different than other people. So while everyone else around you is going one way, you're heading in a different direction. That's kind of the, the idea behind this image. See, everyone's heading one way, and you're just following Jesus, and he's heading in a different direction. Now, I, I'm introverted by nature, so I don't like to stand out. Being different is a way to stand out. And we just have to get used to being different. Again, don't be weirder than you have to. Don't be different for wrong reasons. But if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, people are just going to look at you and go, I, I don't know about you. And you'll get a chance to say, well, let me tell you about me and what's driving me. The thing that I think we all know this, but our world, for all of the talk about being tolerant, they don't tolerate difference. The world doesn't. Especially the kind of difference that, that God brings in our life. They don't tolerate that kind of difference. So Peter writes to Christians, first century Christians, who are experiencing both the pain of being different and the ongoing struggle we all have of becoming different. So I think it's a perfect book to guide us through the challenge of being salt and light in this world. So Peter starts out in chapter 1 by explaining how it is that we change, how it is that God does the miracle of making us different, turning us into salt. And then he talks about how this the process of change, this being different, how, how it continues. And these are the two things we're going to look at tonight. First of all, change begins on the inside. I want you to think of a time when you tried to change something about you. I'm not just talking about you decided you know, to go for a new wardrobe or maybe a different diet or start working out and bulking up. I, I'm not talking about you know, those kinds of things. I'm talking about something about your character, something about you. Maybe you realize, you know what, I, I'm tired of being so angry. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dial down the anger. I really want to be less angry. Or I'm stressed out all the time. I stress about stuff so much, and I, I'm just tired of being this way. So I, I want to change this. Or, you know what? I, I've had a lot of pain in my past, and I, I've realized I just haven't forgiven, and I'm bitter. And I'm just tired of carrying this toxic mess in my heart. So I, I want to stop being bitter. Or, you know what? I really struggle with procrastination. I, I'm, I'm lazy. I get all fired up, and then I just I don't follow through. Or, you know, whatever it is. Just think of something about you that you think, you know what, I, I really would like to change that about me. And then think of a time when you've tried to do that. My guess is you probably came up with a plan that involved a set of activities that were designed to bring about the change. Maybe you read a book, a good book maybe, about how to bring about the change. Maybe you heard a talk about the kind of change that you wanted. So you started out. Let's just say day one. Change plan in action. You're, you're excited, you're, 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 you're fired up because the hope of change is, is there. You've got a plan. You're very committed to it. Then what happened? Well, if you're like me, the longstanding behaviors of your life didn't just lie down and go away because you decided you wanted to stop being angry or anxious or a procrastinator. Now, you, you've been angry or anxious or lazy, 
for years. And that's formed a deep rut in the patterns of your life. And so the long-standing behaviors put up a fight against all these new behaviors. And the fight to be different went on day after day with mixed results. Some days you did better, some days you did worse. But yeah, I'm, I'm telling you my story, so maybe you resonate with this. And so what happens is, over time, it, the excitement that you felt at the beginning was replaced with just hard work and a lot of discouragement. So you began to wonder if the plan that you had started just was the wrong plan. And you began maybe to look for a better plan, a different plan. It seemed easy when you read about it. And if you try long enough and fail long enough, eventually you'll probably give up. And then the next time you hear about a great change plan, you're probably a little less hopeful and a little less excited about launching off on another change effort. And after four or five rounds of this, people tend to abandon the effort of being different. The reason this occurs is because the power to change is not located on the outside of you with a set of plans and a set of behaviors that will affect the change. It's located on the inside of you, where the behavior comes from, your heart. But instead of looking inside, we tend to try to orient ourselves outside. So when our personal change projects fail, we shift from what's wrong with us to what's wrong with something outside of us. And we, we still want to be different, but since that's proven to be impossible, we decide that the key to change is the circumstances around us. And so we start focusing on, you know, if our friend would just change, if the government would just finally get its act together, whenever that might be, if, you know, the teacher in this class wasn't so hard to understand, or if my parents weren't so demanding, then I could get better control over my anxiety or my anger or my bitterness. But as you talk to those who live with you, if they're willing to be honest, you'll discover that the truth about you is you're always angry or anxious or bitter or lazy or stressed, no matter what the circumstances are. And that's because the direction that true long-lasting change um, comes from is, is from the inside. That's the direction it comes from, not from the outside. So what I'm saying is you cannot perform your way into being different with external behaviors. External behaviors can be helpful. We'll talk about that later. But they are not the key wrench of change. Change needs to begin on the inside, deep down inside of us. And the truth is, none of us can initiate that change. God himself needs to extend help, and then we can respond to that. This is what's described in these verses in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Now just listen to this. This is amazing. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power 
until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, if you're like me, about three phrases into that, you kind of glazed over because it's so many big ideas. And the way our minds work is you stack up so many big ideas, we just kind of tilt. Our minds just kind of get numb. So I want to I highlight these phrases. And my hope is that these verses might be a reset opportunity for you if you're discouraged at some point. You might go back and say, okay, this is what God has done for me. This is, the, this is where the change originated from. So there is hope. So let's, let's go through these phrases. In his great mercy, God gives us new life. New birth is what it is. Why do we need new life, new birth? Because our original birth is giving us the lives that we are now living. I'm grateful for that life, but there's a lot about that life that I've been working on to change, just like you. So the life that we are now trying to change in some way is because of the old life. The new birth comes from God the Father and is delivered by Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus was talking about in John 3 with Nicodemus. New birth, new life. And that's why we praise, as it says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he's the one that gave us this new life. Now, birth is, is one of the amazing events of our experience. Every child is born into two things. They are born into a hope, and they are born into an inheritance. Hope points to the potential that that new life represents. Inheritance points, points to the resources of the particular family in which that child is born into. So, first the hope. I mean, I, I can't think of a more hope-filled moment than the birth of a child. When our two kids were born, I mean, I just couldn't help but wondering what they might become. And really, the options were seemingly without limit. Because at the beginning of life, they could become almost anything. That's how big the hope is. The sky is the limit at the beginning of life. But as life goes on, hope begins to narrow. In other words, the, the seemingly limitless list of what my child could become, could, it, it gets smaller. As, as, they, as the life grows. You know, our, our two now are in their 30s. So the hope of either of them becoming a professional athlete, that's, that's gone. That died. You know, you, you, you're not going to start becoming athletic at a professional level in your 30s. Now, I'm not talking about chess and stuff like that. I'm, I'm talking about <laughs> stuff that requires muscles and agility and things like that. That kind of professional athlete. So that hope is gone. And that's just the way hope is. The hope that comes with the life that God brings, though, is a different kind of hope in that it's not a dying hope, it's a living hope. Every hope in this world is a dying hope. It, in other words, it has a lifespan to it. It starts, 
And then it narrows, and then it comes to an end. The hope of being different is one of those dying hopes. We all get to the point in some area in our life where we just lose hope that we're ever going to change. And we give up. That hope dies. But if we are given new life, if we are born again, then the living hope from God is different because it follows the template of the one who purchased that life, Jesus Christ. It follows the ark of the resurrection of Jesus. What was the ark? Death to resurrection. Now, when you, when you start with death and you end up with life, that's reverse from anything we know. So that's the kind of hope that we've been born into, resurrection kind of hope. So no matter what that means is no matter how bad things look, there's always reason for hope because no matter how bad things look, you're not hanging on a cross, you're not in a tomb. And the one you follow, hung on a cross, lay in a tomb for three days, and then knocked over some Roman guards and broke the seal and the stone and walked out. That's who you follow. That's who I follow. So that, that hope is rooted in the great mercy of God. That God would, in His mercy, resurrect things in my life that need to be resurrected, that I've given up on, that other people have given up on. The word great in, in the New Testament uh, Greek, you know, the New Testament is written in Greek. The word um, here for great is the Greek word for many. So it's the great that comes from uh, the number, not the size. Now, God's mercy is great in size, but this is speaking of the many mercies of God. And that's very important for us because if you're like me, you don't just need God's mercy once. It's not just one big, oh my goodness, I can't believe what he did. He needs a lot of mercy event. There have been some of those. But mostly it's been, oh, God, help him. And, and again, God, please be kind to him. I mean, hundreds of those. That's the kind of mercy that God gives. The mercy that you never come to God and God says, what? I mean, how many more times are you going to come to me in need of forgiveness? We are approaching the great mercy of God. His lamentation says, it's brand new every morning. Doesn't get, doesn't get worn out. My mercy, yeah. I get tired of being merciful to some people. But God doesn't. That's his great mercy. So if there's no limit to God's mercy, then this hope that he gives us doesn't die. So that's the, the hope part of this new birth. Every child that's born, every new life comes with all kinds of hope. When we are given new life in Christ, we are given new hope. But that hope doesn't fade over time. It actually grows. Now the inheritance part. The inheritance point part of a birth points to the resources of the family that you're born into. Now, usually you don't take possession of your inheritance, your family inheritance, until the relative closest to you dies that owns those resources. 
But in this case, the death that triggered the release of these resources is the death of Christ. And so as a follower of Jesus, because we are part of his family, we have immediate access to the inheritance. And unlike every other inheritance, this kind of inheritance never perishes, it says. It never spoils, it never fades. Let me say it this way. The balance never goes down because the resources are not in the bank accounts or the stock markets of this world. Where are the resources? They're in heaven. That's why they never perish, spoil, or fade. So the resources of heaven are our inheritance. The power of God himself is what we draw on for change. The problem is we're not in heaven now, right? So how do we access the amazing inheritance in heaven while we're here on earth? It goes on to say, through faith. We are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. There'll be a moment where the salvation work of God in your life and in my life is complete, and we will be what we have longed to be. Until that point, we are shielded by God's power through our faith and our trust in Him. What that means is, as we put our trust in God, He shields us by His power as we trust Him. In other words, we are protected from more evil than we can know. And we are helped in ways that sometimes we can't see, but sometimes we can see. This is why we can be different. Not because we've got more willpower, not because we finally found a plan, but because God has birthed new life in us through his son, Jesus Christ, and change has begun. And it's a resurrecting kind of change, not a dying kind of change. It's a, lef- it's a life that's kept alive, not by our sustaining efforts, but by God's great mercy. It's a life that's funded by the resources of heaven and transferred us to us daily by God's power that keeps coming to our rescue as we trust him. Now, without this new life, Change is a a dying hope project. We can modify some things, but we we can't become salt. The kind of people that flavor the environment and the people around it. We, We can't do that on our own. We need new life. So this brings me to the the second thing that Peter goes on to talk about, and that is how change continues. So it starts this way, on the inside, by new life. But it it continues by faith. So change is a a long-term project that requires faith every step of the way to see it through to the day we die. So again, this is not the mouse plan with magic words and pixie dust where things happen in two hours. This is the real plan of change. And it takes time. It's a long-term project. So here's what it says. The next verse is 1 Peter 1, 6-7. In this, so we've just talked about in this we greatly rejoice. So 
If you're feeling discouraged, go back and memorize these verses and meditate on these verses and allow your soul to be encouraged because in this we greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, things are hard. Now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Have you ever wondered why life is so hard? I mean, there are better days and worse days and better weeks and worse weeks, better years and worse, but no one gets a pass on hard. Maybe you had a hard family growing up or a hard time in school or a hard time just making your way socially and, and making friends. Who knows what kind of hard's ahead of you? You know, this last Sunday I, I spoke on the gift of children. And I heard of a, a couple that's been starting to come to our church six months now. And they let another friend of theirs know to tell me that they just couldn't come to hear about the gift of children. And the reason is because they have three sons in their 30s who, in the last two to five years, have all died of fentanyl overdose. And my friends that told me this, this what do I say to them? It's like, I don't know what you say. I mean, why? We don't get a pass on hard. That's, that's about as hard as I can imagine it getting. Because no matter how hard life has been, we're all going to face and have faced the hardest of all, and that is death. Why? Well, we're told why these trials have come. They have come so that. I love those two words. That means there is a point. We may not understand everything about it. I don't know that you ever understand why your three children die. But there is a so that. And what's the so that? So that your faith. That's the why behind the trials. So name your trial and ask why. The big answer is always the same. The, the particular answer is going to differ, but the big answer is always your faith. Why did you lose your job? Well, so that your faith might grow. Why is this class so hard? Well, so that your faith might grow. Why is marriage so hard? Because you're a knucklehead and so that your faith <laughs> might grow. Why did God allow? I mean, I, I went in for a routine procedure a few weeks ago and under anesthesia, they damaged my vocal cords and I couldn't speak for two weeks. Why? So that my faith. It's always so that my faith, so that your faith. So that our faith what? Here it is. May be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. This is what God wants to do. If you decide that God wants to give you the most exciting, comfortable life ever, you are going to be thoroughly disappointed in the God who exists. Because this is what he wants to do, not that. You may have some comfort. 
He's going to give you some good gifts. But what he really wants to do is grow your faith so that it may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. When Jesus is revealed in the end, everything of value is going to be repriced. And that price will stay. That's not going to be a market fluctuation thing. That's going to be what it really has always been, and now forever everyone will know what it's worth. We will see that it is the quality of our faith that honors Jesus most. So when Jesus returns, he's not going to you know, look at this campus and say, wow, that's a really neat building. I mean, I can't even imagine that's going to be... It's, how, how would this come in to a conversation? It's been a great tool for God to work in a lot of people, but it's, it's just stuff. It's going to be my faith in the process of leading this church. Your faith in the process of whatever assignment God gives you. What's faith? We don't have time to get into it, but I love the, the old definition, trust and obey. You know, the old hymn, if you've never heard it, it's great. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but trust and obey. Faith is basically, I trust God in the middle of this right now to the extent that I will do what he says. I will obey him. I will do the right thing no matter how hard it is, no matter how torn up I am on the inside. I will trust him and do what is right. That's what faith is. And you just move forward on those two feet. You trust him, obey him. You trust him, you just walk forward in faith. So how can you know whether your faith is real? People ask me this a lot. I don't know if I, I feel like I have faith. Well, first of all, faith is not an emotion. It's a condition that has grown over time as you trust God in the real moments and you decide to do what is right. But faith is tested the same way gold is. It's tested by fire. Gold and faith, that's, it's talking about you know, the comparison between gold and faith. The gold and faith share Three common traits, which is why they're compared to each other right here. So here are the three traits. First of all, both gold and faith need to be valued. It says your faith of greater worth. There's a value that's assigned to both. Throughout history, gold has been the leading standard of what something is worth in this world. You know, we've historically we call it the gold standard. You know, I think you probably know this, but our, our dollars in this country used to be backed up by gold. In other words, for every paper bill that was printed, there was a piece of gold, Fort Knox, somewhere else that backed it up. That ended in 1971 when we wanted to print more dollars than we had gold. So we, we separated from the gold system. And so now there's variations, but for the most part, the U.S. dollar has become kind of the leading standard of value around the world but countries still hold significant reserves of gold. And in times of crisis, people buy gold. price of gold goes up this last week because a few banks have failed. People want gold because that's, that's the value. That's, what's, that's of, of great worth. But according to God, faith is the real standard of what's valuable in life. So while most people in this world are doing everything they can to increase their net worth, God is trying to increase your net faith. That, that's his agenda. 
And we have to decide what's worth more. Stuff or faith? And the thing about faith is it's kind of like gold in that it's not just lying around on the ground waiting for us to pick it up. Oh, look, a gold nugget. I think I'll pick it up. And now I've just gotten all this money. Faith isn't like that where it's like, you know what? I want more faith. Let me grab some. No, like gold, it has to be mined. Tunnels have to be dug. And that's hard. The hard stuff in life are the tunnels that are needed to be dug in order to mine the gold of faith. So if you've ever been to a mine site, you walk on the site and you ask the miner, what's with the mess? What's with all the dirt and the tunnels? And he'll probably look at you and say, well, this is a gold mine, not a gold laying all on the ground and we just pick it up. It's a gold mine. We got to take pickaxes and dynamite and dig stuff up and sweat. You ask God, what's with all the hard stuff in my life? And he'll say, well, this is a faith mine. Faith isn't just lying around. It's going to take some dynamite to break some things loose. So no tunnels, no gold, no trials, no faith. It's just the way I wish there was another formula. There isn't. There's just no getting around it. So both need to be valued. Secondly, both need to be refined. It says, your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. Gold out of the ground is mixed with impurities that need to be separated. Intense heat is the common way to purify gold. As the gold is heated, the impurities rise to the top. It's called dross, and the dross is scraped away and removed. It's the same with our faith. Our faith is mixed. What I mean by that is we have faith in God. We really trust God. And we have faith in our money. And we have faith in what people think of us. And we have faith in how well things are going. So which is of greater value? Which is our top faith? And how much of the total faith pie is really faith in God? Well, you can't tell by looking at us. In fact, we don't even know. The only way that faith impurities come to the surface is when the heat is turned up. Because our hearts are like metal. Under the heat of pressure, the stuff just comes out. People like to say in those moments, oh, that's not like me. It's like, oh, no, now we're getting to see what's like you. Up to that point, there wasn't enough pressure to really see what's inside. uh, Oh, that's not like me. Yeah. It is, totally. So where is God turning up the heat in your life right now? What stuff is bubbling deep inside the surface? I know it's not pretty. But God brings these things up not to shame us, but to change us. So, now you know. Don't get discouraged. Just work on it. The last thing about faith and gold is they both need to be proved. It says maybe proved genuine. I don't know if you've ever been up to Sutter's Mill where the gold rush started here in California, but they still let you pan for gold, you know, in in the river there. And much of what you get is iron pyrite, which is known by its common name, fool's gold. And I remember getting it, it's like, oh my goodness, I think I got some. The guy came over, he's like, no, that's fool's gold. Okay. 
Looks like gold to me. But you can prove whether it's not two ways. You can pound it with a hammer. If you pound fool's gold with a hammer, it just turns to dust. You pound real gold with a hammer, it just flattens out. And by heating it up, you heat up fool's gold, it emits sulfur. Not real gold. It's in the pounding, it's in the heating that you prove whether this gold is real. It's the same thing with your faith. You know, it's one thing to be fooled about gold. It's, a, it's another thing to be fooled about faith. We think this life is about all that we can see on the surface, but it's about getting at and growing what's on the inside that's of real value, and that is our faith in God. That's what's going to last. That's what's going to result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Praise, glory, and honor. Praise means to approve of or commend. Glory means to count for something that really matters. Honor is to establish the worth of something. These three are what everyone is searching for in life. Praise, glory, and honor. If you, if you got a chance to see any of the Oscars, that's all it was. Praise, glory, and honor. And gold statues. Praise, glory, and honor. And other gold statues. Everyone's striving for these. In this world, these three are fleeting and temporary at best. Only faith in Christ will deliver all three. Not now, starting now, but not ending now. Mostly when Jesus Christ is revealed. So that's the big decision that we have in the process of being different, is will we go for what shines like gold here and be like everyone else? Or will we pursue faith in Jesus Christ and be different. So let me end with another what if. What if? What if God would use you to change a big part of this world? Now that's a plan. Let me pray. Father, we know ourselves or at least we have a sneaking suspicion about ourselves. And we know that it's just hype to think that in our own power we could change the world. We can't. But Jesus, you did, and you still are. And sometimes it's hard for us to take the trials of a moment and see what that has to do with your great plan. But it's as we trust you, and do the next right thing you want us to do, that we flavor what's around us. And we are a part of your great plan to change the world. Help us uh, to trust you, particularly when the heat is turned way up. I mean, in this room, there's, there's just a lot of hard in front of us. God, we pray that you would use that to mine the gold of genuine faith in our lives. We pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.